Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a conversation between Pastor Douglas Wilson and Dr. Glenn S. Sunshine. They discuss Dr. Sunshine's new book, 32 Christians Who Changed Their World, and why you should read Christian biographies. If you enjoy this episode, you can pre-order the book now at canonpress.com. So, I'd like to welcome Glenn Sunshine to Moscow again. Good to have you here. Um, the occasion is that uh, Canon is preparing to release a new book of yours, 32. And uh, what a cryptic title. What a <laughs> well, the, the full title is 32 Christians Who Changed Their World. Okay, but the 32 is going to be big on the cover, right? I think so. <laughs> All right, so 32 Christians Who Changed the World. Are these, um, who are they? Are they Christians we already know or Christians... Obscure Christians who changed the world. and Well, the book originated, to answer that, I need to back up a little bit. The book originated in a lecture I gave for the Centurions program under Chuck Colson. And I was assigned this title, Christians Who Changed Their World. And I knew Chuck. He wanted me to do Wilberforce. He wanted me to do a whole bunch of those guys. And I looked at that and I said, nah, too easy. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was pick a bunch of people that either nobody ever heard of or they didn't realize they were Christians, or they didn't even uh, connect the fact that their Christian faith led them to the Did contributions anything. that they made. Yeah. To, to show the, the way that a Christian worldview, you know, it was under Chuck, a Christian worldview can affect pretty much everything, that it, it can have, you know, it can help you in the sciences, it can help you in education, it can help you in the arts, it can help you, no matter where you go, the Christian worldview applies. Right. And Christians can do great things if they simply live out their faith in whatever their calling is. I'm fond of saying that your theology comes at your fingertips, and if it's holding the helm of a ship or paint, a painter's paintbrush or doing math problems, whatever your fingertips are doing, your faith in Christ affects that. Exactly. Right. So, um, uh, and you want you wanted to pick Christians who made a significant a significant contribution, but whose contribution was overlooked somehow or not recognized. Uh, a lot of them were people nobody had ever heard of. Uh, some of them were people that you know that they did know, people like uh, Johannes Kepler or someone like that. But they didn't understand that what Kepler did came out of his faith. You know, so it was it was a, a sort of a mix of those things. But most of them were people who were completely obscure. Okay, so um, let's zoom out for uh, a bit and just talk about um, your interest in biography generally. Uh, um, you've obviously written um, these biographical sketches of of these people. You read a lot of biographies. How how has reading biography affected you? Well, I think that the the great thing about reading biographies is that. It can take you out of yourself. It takes you out of, well, I, I'm an uh, early modern and medieval historian. It takes you out of your time and place. And if it's a well-written biography, it shows you the world in which the person lived. It opens up new ways of seeing the world, new ways of thinking that are very different from ours. And along with that, it can be tremendously inspiring as you take a look at what these people did with their lives. Because the fact of the matter is, I mean, okay, some of them are, are flat-out geniuses, but a lot of them are just sort of normal people who are living out their faith 
in creative ways in the particular calling that God gave them. I'm not sure who it was that said the past is a different country. They do things differently there. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It, you, you're, it's, uh, reading biography is like, uh, like traveling. Where if you're provincial and down on the farm, you think everywhere is like here. Right. Every, you interpret everything in terms of your, your own experience. And reading biography takes you out of yourself, takes you to different places where it makes you less judgmental, actually. I think that that's correct. And, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote an introduction to Athanasius's On the Incarnation, in which he made a really strong argument for reading old books. Yeah. Because he said, you know, every era has its own blind spots. When we read old books, however, we're quick to recognize their blind spots, but they're not the same blind spots as the ones we have. So that can help us see our own areas that, that we've completely overlooked, our own assumptions and things like that. It can cause us to help question those things, um, to identify where those blind spots are. Biography does the same thing. Again, if it's a well-written biography. Um, talk for a minute. We won't focus on it because we're positive kind of people. We're not going to focus on the negative, but uh, there are pitfalls to reading biographies. Um, hagiography would be one of mm -hmm. them, right? Where you, um, uh, where the person has no warts and can do no wrong and walked right. on water. Uh, but then there's the debunkers, which would be more um, in fashion in our day, where, right. where we want to uh, take men off their pedestal. I just finished a book um, this weekend uh, called The Sins of G.K. Chesterton. And it's a, and it was not a hatchet job. It was not a hatchet job, and it was mostly about the sins of Hilaire Belloc and the sins of Cecil Chesterton, who was Chesterton's brother, and how Chesterton got played by them. But but the point is, you when I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, in anybody who's been through any kind of controversy, knows what it would be like to have a biographer come back and. Talk to only the people on the other side of the controversy. Right. <clears throat> the hagiographers come back and talk to all your fans. The mm -hmm. the right. uh, the debunker comes back and talks to all the mm -hmm. uh, all the critics. What? How do you um, how do you budget? Uh, I don't think anybody anybody can achieve total objectivity. We're finite creatures. But how do you achieve sort of a intellectual honesty in dealing with that sort of thing? Well, I think that the best way to do it is to read multiple sources. Um, read the more positive biographies, read the less positive biographies, identify where the problem areas are, and then just try to make your own evaluation of that. Right. Uh, that's really about the only way you can do it. But the thing I think that's important to remember is that we've all got feet of clay. We are all people who who have sins, who have faults, who have failings. And... Well, in the Lord's Prayer, we're told to forgive others, that we're, to we're told to ask God to forgive us the way we forgive others. Mm -hmm. And I think we don't take that seriously enough. Uh, yes, it's important to identify where there are failings in people, but it's also important to treat them with sympathy. Yeah. Because we have failings ourselves. We have faults ourselves. We have our own sins. Yeah. Judge not lest you be judged. The exactly. Judgment which you judge, you shall be judged. Um, my, my father grew up in a Nebraska farm family, second of six sons, joined the Navy. It was, it was a Judeo-Christian family, but not Christian. And he was converted at the Naval Academy. And while he was at sea, he decided that he, he had no examples. He had no Christian examples to imitate. And the New Testament 
to, uh, instructs us to learn by imitation. Paul's saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And my dad decided that I need to read biographies uh, uh, so I can have 10, you know, lives to imitate. So he started um, back in the back in the 50s reading missionary biographies, and that became a lifelong habit, giving, giving biographies away. Because a lot of people today, particularly today, don't have models to look up to. They have no idea how you'd even start to go about living life as a Christian in different fields. Yeah, and and the other the, the problem with that is that uh you have to be again, you have to be careful about picking your biographies. You know, right now there is a movement to um to denigrate um Eliot, Nate Saint, all of right. the others that were martyred there as cultural imperialists. Right. Yeah. So you have to be careful where you're looking, even even yeah. in in a culture like ours where there is widespread hostility to Orthodox Christianity in both faith and practice. Uh, you have to be careful about your biographies because what you're going to find are people as you know. The, you're going to find the debunkers. You're going to find the people who are going to complain about everything that's being done. Right. Um, and that's that. You, this again is one of these places where worldview matters. You've got to understand the worldview of the author. They've got a particular agenda that they're pushing, uh, which is true of most biographers. They, they've got a point that they're trying to make. Do you, but, I'm, I'm not. I don't know if you, there's an answer to this question. But do you have a favorite biographer or or a favorite biography or any biography that you've read that you found was really striking or affected you? Uh, Peter Brown on Augustine. Okay. Uh, it's probably That's the single one. best biography of Augustine out there. Uh -huh. um, and uh, that biography, uh, in a lot of ways, helped my faith um, okay. because it helped me to think through a number of issues that when I read it, I was struggling with those. And they paralleled in some ways some of Augustine's ideas, and Brown's explication of those really helped me to think through and understand some important issues I was facing at that point. Yeah. That's a good biography, but I wouldn't be in a position to judge it because that's the only biography of Augustine that well, I read. But it, I landed, I landed on my feet. <laughs> by consensus, that is the finest biography of Augustine out there. Okay. Um, any um, any particular? You, you said your field is medieval. Um, uh, history, any particular um, era that you gravitate toward? Well, my doctoral work was actually in Reformation, okay. but I did a lot of my grad work in medieval as well. Um, I actually find myself attracted in a lot of ways to the early Middle Ages and particularly to the Irish saints. Okay. Uh, I, find, I find the Irish saints an absolutely fascinating group, uh -huh. and they did they had their faults, certainly, but they did a lot of really amazing things and, and made a huge impact on culture that's been largely forgotten. Uh, um, what do you think about, um, uh, let's talk for a moment about popular biographies and scholarly uh, biographies. You mentioned the Irish saints, um, Cahill's How the Irish Saved Civilization. Does that do good things or bad things? Both. Um, on the whole, I think it's a good book. Um, even a casual reading, though, you can find he's got certain axes he wants to grind. Right. Um, he argues that the English have suppressed all knowledge of Irish history in this period. It's simply not true. <laughs> um, he doesn't like Augustine. You know, there are a number of things like that that I think he messes up on. 
But overall, the thrust of the book is really good. It gives you a good picture of the sweep of things that the that the Irish saints did um, right. for Europe. Do you prefer deep dive biographies into one guy? Um, uh, for example, I think of Dalimore's two volume biography um, of Whitfield, of Whitfield yes. which was uh, that was another one that I was going to name as one that I liked. Yeah, I've, uh, that was a big one for me. I, um, it was a man. <laughs> so that was a deep dive into one man's life and the people immediately surrounding him, as opposed to, let's say, someone who writes a, a history of Christianity in um, 18th century England. What, what do you have a preference? You know, I think I, I, again, it's one of these things. Both of them have value. It depends on what I'm looking for at the moment. There are times when those deep dive biographies are really useful to me, um, in terms of my own work and in terms of my own growth. But there are other times when you know, you you can not see the forest sometimes because of the trees. And I think sometimes the the more broad sweeping histories. Uh, can do you a lot of good too. Both of them have their place, and I don't really know that I can say I've got a preference. Okay. So, um, any any other? So, um, what about a sec- secular figures uh, biography of someone like Churchill or someone like that? How does do you read um, biographies of secular individuals in order to get the place of you know around um, Christians? Yes. And um, in order to, you know, sometimes a biography is the best way to get a sense of a period. And as a historian that has had to teach everything from the Stone Age to the present, uh, getting that sense of a period is really important. And sometimes actually the best way to do it, even in a classroom, is to tell stories about a specific individual. Because those stories can illustrate, number one, people like stories, so you can actually catch people's attention with that. But they also can illustrate things about the period that you could talk about in an abstract way, but then it doesn't really sink in what you're saying. It's when you're dealing with the individual and you're looking at the story that you really grasp what's going on. Okay. Do you have a particular appreciation of or suspicion of autobiography? Um, autobiographies, it depends on the individual, but they, you always have to read them with a grain of salt. There are some of them that are out there that are very much exercises in self-promotion. Um, one of the figures that I deal with in, when I'm working in the Renaissance, uh, Petrarch, it's really hard to get ho- a hold of who Petrarch is because he is self-consciously writing for an audience and trying to guide what you think of him through his writing. So you got to be careful what about that. What would Petrarch kind of have done with an Instagram account? <laughs> yeah, it, well, it, it, that's that's almost as horrifying to think about as what Luther would have done with Twitter. <laughs> so, um if you, if you have um uh one of the dan- uh, obviously the the danger of autobiography is the person self-promoting but i've i've thought about is as i'm telling stories about things that i went through or situations i was in you've got the um the sort of the um, pressure of charity right there right there there are people in my life who have done bad things and do i really want to you know as if but let's say it's a fellow christian who behaved in a shabby way 
Right. Um, they're not with the orcs. They're not the devil's party. But it's just, but you know, you can't really tell the story as it happened, with and bring the receipts without sinning against charity, right? I, and I've I've also worried sometimes about going back to reconstruct what happened and going through old files and looking at letters. But I know that a number of letters I've composed, I never sent. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, you're in good company. Abraham Lincoln did the same thing. Um, he wrote letters to generals, basically berating them for their inaction during the Civil War, and he left them in his desk and never sent them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> to, to mislead the careless historian. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, so uh, now, now the other the other side of this, I, I gave the the danger in autobiographies, but the other side of it is that again, depending on the person, if the person isn't writing simply for self promotion, which mm -hmm. some some of them, Ben Franklin did this, Petrarch did this, or a number of people did that, others really want to use autobiographies as a form of. Uh, well, there's a range of things as a form of therapy, as a form of confession, uh, as a form of um, trying to set the record straight. The, the, in many cases, though, they can give you a really important insight into a person and into the way that they think. Right. And you know, so there, there's value there. I don't want to. I don't want to just focus on the negative. Again, it's one of these balancing acts. Yeah. Um, H.L. Mencken wrote a three-volume. Memoirs or, or autobiography, uh, happy days and newspaper days and heathen days. Mm -hmm. And just aside from all the internet, you know, the story or the history, you really come away with a good grasp of that man's personality. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah. you could, you could, which you might be able to tease out from his uh, writing up, you know, his, his regular published writing. But when he's talking about the things he went through, you, okay, I, I think I know him better, even if he doesn't know himself as well as he ought. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've got, I've got two, um, two related questions. One is that, well, to tie off the autobiography, uh, one of C.S. Lewis's friends said that surprised by joy ought to have been called suppressed by Jack. <laughs> so he told us, he, he was telling his spiritual autobiography, but some of his friends said, Hey, there was a whole lot more going on. Right. Um, and again, that's one of these things you got to discern the person's purpose. Yeah. Um, but speaking of C.S. Lewis, one uh, question came up some years ago in one of my classes about where um, uh, the collected letters of C.S. Lewis, three volumes, um, are out there. And I had students read, reading them. And the, the question arose, is this decent? Is this okay? Um, reading, uh, reading other people's mail. It's sort of like um, nobody thinks much of grave diggers, but if it's old enough, it's archaeology, right? <laughs> right. Yep. So, Worse, uh, grave robbers. Yeah. You know? gra gra grave robbers, grave diggers, <laughs> archaeologists. Um, mm -hmm. If if you came across the letters of someone, you know, some Roman merchant writing to his wife, one hundred thirty A.D. You know, it's like you're an archaeologist, right? But if you're reading uh, Lewis's letters. To people, some of whom are still alive, is uh, what, what's your take on that? Well, in, in the case of people who are letters to people who are still alive, you need their permission. Right. That's just that's just an ethical level. 
Past that, I don't have a problem with it. I'm a professional historian. Letters are really important right. in order to do history. And so I don't see that there's necessarily a problem with it. Again, if there are living people who are involved or maybe their children or something like that, you need to get permission. Right. But other than that, I don't see that there's an issue. Yeah. Other than that, it's fair game. So, And people who are public figures uh, really ought to know that, <laughs> right. that um, someone's going to go through your hard drive. And, and the, the letters are really interesting as a source because people do two things that I think are important. One of them is they put their guard down. They tell you generally what they really think if they're writing to someone that they know. Right. particularly. Um, the other thing, though, is um, if you have the correspondence on both sides, you can, someone like Lewis, I, I imagine, had people writing to him all the time asking questions. Yeah. And you can see the way he thinks through the answers, not just on his own, but in a kind of dialectic. He's, mm -hmm. he's dealing with another person. He's, he, Lewis was smart enough to understand you have to think about that other person. Who is it? How are they going to take what I'm saying? You know, I'm, and if I don't know them, it's, you have to be even more careful. But, but you, you begin to understand not just the thinking, but the way the person interacts with others, which tells you a great deal about their character. This is just a practical question from someone who's not, not a historian in terms of professionally. Um, I can understand how the estates of important people would save the letters of George Washington or save the letters mm -hmm. of Lincoln. Um, but uh, I've seen histories and biographies uh, more recently that uh, quote letters of regular folks. Mm -hmm. um, is there a regular folks library? <laughs> so so well, how, how do you, yeah, how, how are those how you, preserved? How do you get those? Well, families will find them in their attic and donate them to the local library or the local historical society. Okay. Uh, I had students in, when I was teaching in Connecticut, I had students doing uh, uh, projects. I had a, did a course called War and Society. It was a senior seminar. And I had students going into local libraries and archives and doing uh, projects based on the letters of specific individuals that were included in those archives. These are just typical, you know, uh, farmers, merchants, what have you. So, so um, uh, my father passed away last May. He was 94. Maybe 10 years before that, he was uh, winding up his affairs. He asked me one time, what should, I, what should I do with the next stage of my life? And I said, write your, write your autobiography, write down all the stories. My dad was a storyteller. He couldn't come back from a, a trip without stories. And so a bunch of the stories we had heard over and over and over uh, in sort of family lore. Mm -hmm. But it's also interesting that we'd get details of them wrong or the stories morph over, you know, right. Uh, the stories morph or whatever. Um, and so we have a weekly uh, Sabbath uh, dinner. And so my dad would handwrite um, his autobiography and he'd give me another stack and we'd transcribe it. And, and it was published as a, his autobiography, Grace Upon Grace. And there were, but this is a, a wonderful exercise for families to do with, the elderly in their families is get the stories down. Yeah. <laughs> right. Get the stories down. I think that's really important. Uh, even if it never, even if it never sees the light of day as a, in a biography, 
it's just something that you can print on demand publishing is such that families can just pass uh, pass family lore down. You know, I my mother went to work when I was five years old when I went to kindergarten, and you know, my dad was working, and so I was largely raised by my grandfather in practical terms. You know, he's the one that when I came home for from school for lunch, he was the one who made lunch. He was there when I got home. All of these kinds of things. My grandfather lived in Central Europe at a time when he remembered town criers going okay. around with a lantern and a halberd at night calling the hours. Uh-huh. I, he died when I was too young to appreciate what he had. Right. And nobody recorded the stories. Right. He wrote a little bit. He had some literary pretensions, which is how I know about some of these right. things. But it would have been so valuable, and it would have meant so much to me, to my kids, yeah. to have recorded those. So yeah. it's really important. My son, uh, my son Nate, uh, both with my dad and with uh, his other grandfather, uh, set up a camera and interviewed. He went up to Coeur d'Alene to interview my father-in-law, um, like two days of tell me the stories, tell me the stories, tell me the stories. Got it all down on tape so that he could mm -hmm. distill it later and just make a just make a record. Right. right. And that may be even the easier way to do it. Just um, just record the stories. And right. it's easy to do on your cell phone these days. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's let's bring this back to the most important topic for today, which would be your book. <laughs> so uh, if you're if you're interested in these things and you really ought to be interested in these things, um, you can. Uh, Order the book now, uh, 32 Christians Who Changed the World. Uh, there's been a spate of books recently that have addressed this topic of try to imagine the modern world untouched by Christianity. Um, Tom Holland's uh, Dominion was one. Another book called Under the Influence, um, the, the Impact That Christianity Has, has Made. Um, and I would, I would want to argue that the difference has been not a trifling difference it's oh it's massive i did a book years ago called why you think the way you do which largely traces the rise and fall of christianity and shaping culture right right so um i heard uh, someone tell a story one time of an atheist um who was traveling to the middle east and he was being hassled at customs like you're a christian like you're a crusader you're a christian he said no 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 i'm an atheist i'm don't believe in God. You're Christian. No, no, no. <clears throat> then he got to his place where he was staying, and he was there was a little plaza, and there was a row of women. It was in the Middle East somewhere, and there's a row of women sitting against the wall, and their sons uh, were out playing, lift, throwing up kittens and hitting them with a baseball bat, with the moms watching and laughing and and stuff, and baseball bat or cricket bat or something like that. And this atheist thought, I am a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, this is uh, we are shaped. Um, I think it was Churchill who said, first we shape our buildings, and then our buildings shape us." Well, the, the Christians shaped the culture we live in, and that culture shapes non-believers down to the present, even with the repaganization of our our culture yeah, proceeding that, apace. That's Tom Howard's Dominion. He's an atheist, or well, by this point, I'm not sure he's an atheist anymore, but. As an ancient historian, he could not recognize the people in the ancient world because the level of just sort of callousness, cruelty, disregard for the poor or the weak, all of those kinds of things. He said, look, I've been shaped by Christianity. Right. 
Right. And um, so just on the spread, uh, your your book, 32, uh, 32 Christians Who um, Shaped the World. Changed their changed, world. Changed the world. Um, uh, you're, you're covering Christians across the waterfront. It's like in the arts, right? In science, in math, military, any military? Men? I don't think I have any military in there. Okay. Uh, I've got a Viking, though. A Actually, Vi- I've got two Vikings. Two Vikings. That's as good as military. Yep. <laughs> Which Vikings? Leif Erikson okay. and Gudrid the Far Traveler. She's okay. a, a woman who actually knew Leif Erikson. Okay. All right. So if you want to hear, if you want to read Leif Erikson's testimony, <laughs> this is the book for you. And the other thing is that we've got Christians from China, India, Japan, uh, South America, along with Europe and North America, and actually a Syrian Christian under the Muslims who was responsible for translating a lot of the medical texts from Greek into Arabic that then passed into Europe. So we're talking about actual multiculturalism instead instead of the pretendy kind. Yep. (laughs) I even have a Mongol. A (laughs) Mongol. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out Dr. Sunshine's book, 32 Christians Who Changed Their World. Pre-order now at canonpress.com.